It is uh, good to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with you after the service today. I hope you are going to stay and uh, fellowship, in, even if that was not your uh, intention. David, the ancient king of Israel, has lived a remarkably good and God-glorifying life. Uh, From the age of of 15 or thereabouts uh, to age 50. Uh, From 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 2 Samuel chapter 10. I mean, he has been living a life that we could describe as as dialed in or stoked or just God-glorifying and full of joy. Some highlights I remember him dancing before the Lord. Remember that? He doesn't care what people think about him he, 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 in, a, in a healthy way, right? In a very healthy way. He, he doesn't care about status and prestige. He looked like a, what we would call a Jesus freak. He danced joyfully before the Lord. He's, he's defeated the enemies of God. He conquered Goliath. God enabled him to expand and claim the land, the territory, Israel. They've gone into the land. He's began building this great city, Jerusalem. To this day, it is referred to as the city of David. It has a a great hotel, the King David Hotel today. Anybody stayed there? Anybody here? Okay, a couple have. It's on my list. I'm going to hang on with them. It's a little pricey to stay there, but I would like to stay there. 3,000 years later, there is continuity from the historical life of David to the city of David today in Jerusalem. His life has been uh, on the rise something around 35 years. Now, this isn't a perfect uh, chart. You like my sophistication of charts? You know, there were a few little bumps in his life. But in general, his life has been on the rise. And the joy of the Lord has been his strength, and God has used him in extraordinary and incredible and in beautiful ways. Look with me on the screen As God spoke to David through Nathan, he said this to David. God said this to David. This is what the Lord, I'm sorry, wrong one. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have been, wherever you have gone. God has been with David. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. I mean, that's pretty cool. If God said to you, you know, insert your name there, I'm going to make your name great. You know, 3,000 years later, people are going to be in a city with your name on it. They're going to be in a hotel with your name on it. 3,000 years later. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. That's extraordinary. This is not referring to a literal house, but to his lineage, that the Messiah, Jesus, would come 
the greater David, the son of David, the greater David, is going to come and and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. David's life has been on the rise. But the trajectory of David's life changes in a moment. It changes one afternoon, late one evening, one night. High on a rooftop with a view. This evening would have massive consequences. Not just for David, but to his son who would die as a consequence of this evening. There are multi-generational consequences to this evening. There are consequences to Bathsheba, to Uriah. We encounter the tragic fall of David in chapter 11. One commentator describes it this way. He says, The story of David and Bathsheba has long aroused both dismay and astonishment. Dismay that King David with his manifest piety, we have seen a, such a godly man, with his manifest piety, could stoop to such an act and astonishment that the Bible narrates it with such unrelenting openness. Although the person involved is David, the great and celebrated king, the type of the Messiah, that is the one who would point to the Messiah, Jesus, this is the one we're reading about. Well, it is appropriate to be uh, sad, to be dismayed, to be surprised at what happens with David. On the other hand, this part of the Bible is like every other part of the Bible. It is there for our benefit, uh, to change us, to make us more like Christ. So I have five ways and five verses that God wants to change us. These five ways are prayers, and my prayer is that your prayer would be similar to these five prayers that are coming out of these five verses. So let's go ahead and get into it, beginning in verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11, I encourage you to have your Bibles open in front of you, or if you don't have one today, grab that Bible in front of you. Put your phone in silent mode, Google first, uh, 2 Samuel 11. You'll follow along better with me if you've got a Bible text in front of you. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. That last sentence is huge. It's pregnant with meaning. But David remained in Jerusalem. It's springtime. It's the time when kings go off to war. This might be foreign to our minds. Maybe uh, it's not foreign to your minds. Of, of If you were here last week and in previous weeks, you understand the commonplace reality of of war in the world's history, including in the ancient Near East. 
One commentator writes this, he says, The month of March, named after Mars, the Roman god of war, affords a parallel. We don't know exactly when this was. might have been March, might have been April, might have been whatever, but it was the time when the rainy season had ended. And battles and wars have been, throughout history, incredibly common, and this was the time when kings go off to war. Notice that word, kings. And then we have this last sentence of verse 1, but David remained in Jerusalem. A little bit more background about the commonplaceness of war in the world. This guy, Chris Hedges, who is a Christian, has done a lot of research on war. And so for his definition, war is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. So he's done research, a journalist has done research on, on war, and look at this conclusion. Of the past 3,400 years, going back 400 years prior to this text we're reading, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them, or just 8% of recorded history. To remind ourselves that the environment that we live in is not a normal environment when it comes to world history. War was a normal environment. And it was springtime. The rainy seasons had ended. They had destroyed the Ammonites. They had besieged Rabbah, which is in modern-day Amman, Jordan. The battles are going well. The, 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 the fighting has been outstanding for Israel in defending her homeland and taking these boundaries and this land that God had promised them. But David remained in Jerusalem. So what does this have to do with your life and with my life? Well, one other commentator, he, he says this. He says, the narrator thus leaves the impression that every able-bodied man in Israel goes to war, everyone that is, except the king himself. The narrator, the writer of 2 Samuel, is giving us this impression, everybody's there. But David has remained in Jerusalem. What does this have to do with your life and my life? Well, the first of five points in these five verses, which are five prayers. Prayer number one, I want to suggest is, Lord, help me to use my gifts not neglect them. And by gifts, I mean that term in the very broadest sense. David was talented in many ways, but someone who has read First and Second Samuel, he was an extraordinary, talented warrior. I mean, he was, you know, the, there's a few good men they're looking for. I mean, he's at the top of the heap of the few. He lives in a time and a culture where war was a, a routine part of life. And unlike today, where the commander-in-chief stays in the White House or flies in a secure airplane during war, in those days, the commander-in-chief, the king, was on the front lines. But David remained in Jerusalem. 
The ancient Near Eastern warrior king belonged on the battlefield. This was one of his gifts, his talents. I am wanting to happen right now what I want to happen every week, that we're not just reading details of the Bible, but the Bible is reading us. The Bible is reading you and your life and who you are. What talents do you have? What gifts do you have? What time do you have? What would God like you to do? When I say what time do you have, I mean outside of those of you that have a full-time job where you're working to provide, outside of that job, what do you do with your time? For those of you who have the privilege of not having to work at all, what do you do with your time? David remained in Jerusalem. The ancient Near Eastern warrior king belonged on the battlefield. A college student in 2023 belongs in the library studying. The wildland firefighter in 2023, he belongs out in the forest when it is enraged in flame. God has gifted us with spiritual gifts. He has given us talents. He has given us time. He's given us settings in life. He has not given us these settings, these gifts, these times, these talents to neglect them. This is very loudly one of the themes of 2 Samuel chapter 11, not just these first five verses. So prayer number one, Lord, help me to use my gifts, not neglect them. Let's move on to verse two, beginning of verse two. He should be off at war. He remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Some of your translations, uh, the ESV says late one afternoon. It's not dark yet. King James Version says evening tide. It was evening tide. He got up from his bed, so he was taking a nap. We got any nappers here? So a, a wrong, wooden, literal application or interpretation of 2 Samuel 11 is that God is against naps. Say, say no. Say no. God, God is not against naps, unless you're supposed to be on the battlefield. If you're supposed to be on the battlefield, God is against naps. So it's, it's twilight, maybe. It's afternoon. He's taken a nap, and he's walked around the roof. To contextualize that, he's out on his deck. So ancient Near Eastern homes were built of stone. They had flat roofs. They utilized their roofs, unlike us, as their decks. This is where they hung out. This is a good thing. I love being on my deck. It's good to be on your deck. It is good to take a nap. It is not good to do it when you should be exercising your talents, your gifts, your setting in life in some other place. So he's not on any ordinary deck. He's on the deck, the roof of the palace. We have a map here of what Jerusalem looked like, very small area, uh, back in David's day. Uh, so his, his place is right, uh, right here. Now, this is so incredible. 
Lord willing, we're, we're actually going to have a, a cornerstone and, and maybe um, a couple other of our brother and sister churches here in Auburn with us potentially have a trip to Israel in 2024. More about that later. But if you go on that trip or you visit Jerusalem today, you can see these stepped stone structure that one of our builders or contractors could tell you about. This is Phil here. You can see that today. Uh, the palace is long gone. The future temple is going to be here that David's son is going to build. David's walking out on his rooftop there. You see he's got a great view from his deck, if you will. Back to the text. He's got up from bed, from his nap. He's walked around on the roof of his palace. And he should not be there. One commentator says this, readers can see the contrast between the king who is at leisure and the soldiers on the field. We're not going to get into later, passage, later verses today, but until, except for right now. Glance your eyes over to verse 11. Uriah is speaking there, and he says, my master, in the middle of verse 11, my master Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. What he's saying there is the soldiers are vulnerable to attack. This is what Uriah is saying to David. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? This is not what Marines do when their men, their their fellow soldiers are in jeopardy of attack. You don't go home and eat dinner and hang out with your wife. This is what Uriah is saying. The reader is supposed to see here in these early verses a contrast between a king who is at leisure and soldiers on the field. What does this have to do with your life and my life? It is all too often the case that a sense of ease and security is the prelude to spiritual and moral failure. Prayer number two. Lord, help me to never settle for a life of comfort. It is the opposite of what the world and our culture teaches us. What the Bible teaches. That God has made us to work, even if we don't have to work for money. He's made us to serve him. I, I read an article not long ago in the Wall Street Journal, short article, like the headline of the article should have been, this is the way that everybody would like to live. It was describing a young couple, no children, in their 30s, both professionals, both working part-time from their laptops, making enough money, they figured out, to sell their home and live a life of leisure, traveling, in less expensive places to travel around the world. And they made this decision. They, they, they work a little bit, a few hours here and there, each of them, and they're on vacation. And they've been doing this for some time, and they've got a blog and whatever about it. I'm not going to tell you the link. <laughs> I'm going in a little different direction today. Why? Why wouldn't I say, hey, we should all do this? Because that is anti-Christ, is what that life is. 
a life of perpetual vacation and ease. That's Antichrist. This text has a lot to say to us about life. To not settle for a life of comfort. Watching the sunset from our deck is a good thing. Going on vacation is a good thing. Taking rest is a good thing. But this being the goal, the, the apogee, the pinnacle, this is, this, is what my, this is where I'm headed. This is what I want life to be all about. I'm going to work so I can stop working and do all this. That is antithetical to the Bible. So God help me to never settle for a life of comfort. God has made you for something greater than to walk on your deck and watch the sunset. That's a good thing to do. He's made you for something better than to travel the world in perpetual vacation, even though you're working a few hours each day from your laptop. He's made you for something more, get this, than mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah. Buying a home on the west shore. It's the best shore in Lake Tahoe. And, and mountain biking every day. The little paddle boarding thrown in. Little coffee by the lake every morning. That's what life is all about. That's antichrist. That is not what life is all about. It is not what life is all about. David has fallen to some degree into this sort of life. The narrator, the unknown author of 2 Samuel, has skillfully written here for us to see this epic contrast of men whose lives are at risk in the open field without their best warrior and leader there. This isn't just any warrior or leader. This is David who took down Goliath. What does he do for the spirit of the troops when he's in camp? He's taking a nap. He's walking around his deck in verse 2 on the palace. Let's continue in verse 2. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. She was very beautiful. He doesn't know who she is. He can't identify her, but he sees her body clearly. Her naked body, clearly. Very beautiful. This Hebrew phrase is reserved for people of striking physical appearance. David doesn't know her soul, her spirit, who she is. This is used for Rebecca, for Vashti, for Esther. Compared with the usual adjective, yapa, for beautiful, as in 1 Samuel 25.3, where it's used of Abigail, David's wife, now, the emphasis here is more distinctly on the woman's appearance. That's all he has to go by. He's standing on the deck. I don't think he was intending to see her. There's nothing in the text 
there's nothing in First and Second Samuel, especially Second Samuel, to think that he went out there to see her. That, but he sees her. So we're at the key moment right now. And this is a key moment because God wants the Bible to read our hearts. This isn't a key moment for David now. 3,000 years later, he's already made his decision. But the reader who is seeking after Christ and wants to live has to think about when I'm in a temptation, when I am, the darkness of lust is upon me, whether I'm alone or whether I'm on a rooftop or in a bar, or at a restaurant, or at a friend's house, how am I going to respond? It's not, uh, what would Jesus do here? I want to suggest, uh, what should David do? What should David do here? He sees a beautiful woman bathing. I've got, I've got four options I've written down. What should David do? Obviously, these are not for David. These are for us. And I'm starting with one where you don't need to get real spiritual here. I don't think he intended to see her. He's out on the deck. He sees her. How about, number one, you go in the kitchen and make a peanut butter jelly sandwich? You just turn around. You don't need to start singing one of the psalms that you've written and, and get all spiritual necessarily, although that'd be great. But how about you just turn around and go to the kitchen and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when your eyes have seen this, this very beautiful woman. Bounce your eyes off her, turn around, and go to the kitchen. So that's one. Number two, you could preach to yourself a verse that I think David knew by heart, and many of you men do, and if you don't, this is, if not the most, one of the most important verses, for, for, could be for a woman too, but especially for a man. I made a covenant with my eyes. Not to look lustfully at a girl. I see her, there's temptation, but, but I can, I, 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 on my way to the kitchen, I, I could bring this to mind and oh, I can go to a different place. It's not even essential. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich would have been a good idea, but this would be even better. To have the word of God hidden in his heart and have trained himself because this happens to every, every male over the age of 11 or 12. What's going on in his mind and heart happens to every single male. What are you going to do when that happens? I, I, you get what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're going to be on the deck at night and see a woman bathing. You, what I'm saying is you're going to have this, this moment of temptation. If you're a male and you're over about 11 or 12 years old, what are you going to do when that happens? This is one thing to do, is to bring this verse to mind and to go in a different direction. That's number, number two. Number three, um, you could turn to uh, something that I would recommend, as well as Job 31.1, 1, 
uh, a document that I have, and I'm going to put some out. On the, there's some out in the foyer. Some of you should grab them on your way out. You could go to this document, Strategies for Fighting Sexual Sin. I think there's 25. I'm not going to go through all 25 today. Say amen. But we're going to look at one of them. Number six, preach to yourself that there is more joy in God's presence than in sin. Transpose your desire. That is, flip your desire. So he's got this intense desire for this beautiful woman. He needs to change his desire to a better and superior desire, a desire to glorify God. It doesn't feel like a better desire. In fact, some of you, if you're not believers, might think that that's actually a lie that I'm saying. That's not a better desire. It is a better desire. But it doesn't feel like a better desire because our feelings are often fallacious and wrong and erroneous. They're real and terribly wrong. So preach to yourself, there's more joy in some other desire being fulfilled than this one that I have right now. And maybe go to Psalm 4. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Grain and new wine are good things. And if David were a single man, and this was a single woman, and his intent if we want to give him, uh, up until this point, the benefit of the doubt, and, and, and maybe he's going to seek, if he were a single man, that, that he could be just wanting to seek her as, as a wife if she's a single woman. Uh, there are better things than wine or grain or even one's own wife. Fill my heart with a greater joy. So he could do that. Number four, right? Am I on number four? Number four, how about you go find Abigail? His wife. She is wonderful. She's your wife. Maybe you could do all of these. I mean, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the kitchen, then on your way to go find Abigail. He is in a dangerous spot. You and I have been in dangerous spots. Matthew Henry writes this, he says, the foolish fly fires his wings and fools away his life at last by playing about the candle. We've all sat around a fire and you watch the moth or the mosquito or the bug or whatever, they're attracted to that fire. You watch them flying and they, they, they like that light. It's a dangerous place to fly, but, but they like to fly. And what happens sometimes? They, 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 they swoop in too low and they perish. So, prayer number three. Lord, help me to make a covenant with my eyes, and that covenant's going to include some sort of action plan. These are different ways that David could have responded in that moment. In verse 2, from the roof, when he saw a woman bathing, the woman was very beautiful. Let's come back here and, and finish up our 
next few verses. That is not, of course, you know the end of the story, that David, that is not what David did. Verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So this is loaded. So Eliam is, her, her father, she's from a very prominent family. That's part of what is meant by that phrase, the daughter of Eliam. She's from that family. Now, we don't think that much this way, but in those days, she's from that family. And she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This is the guy who will serve you, who won't leave his wingman, who, who, is, who would never consider leaving his men in the field unless his commander-in-chief told him to. This is who she is. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. This is a dark, dark time in David's life that would prove to be pivotal. pivotal. This is more than a pivot. This is a, the consequences are massive. So number four, Lord, help me to be wise about who I spend time alone with. He sends for this woman. This is not a new theme. Older man of power sends for a young, beautiful woman and acquires her. He sent people to go get her. Last verse. We're in the middle of verse 4. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. There's a lot in that little parenthetical sentence there. We may not be familiar with ancient Near Eastern culture and Jewish culture, but what this is saying is she has just gone through her monthly cycle. The very intelligent author of this book is is letting the reader here know that she is not pregnant. It's part of what he's doing here. And he's also letting the careful reader know her state, her availability to become pregnant. She has purified herself. This is what women in those days would do. Then she went back home the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Final five verses, five prayers. Lord, help me to be wary of self-confidence. If, if you have carefully studied 2 Samuel, you are not expecting David to do this. That is what the, the Lord, through the Spirit-inspired text, wants you and me to see. Because guess what? We might think of ourselves the way David was thinking of himself. This kind of thing wouldn't happen. It happens. We should not have confidence in ourselves in these kinds of moments. Lord, help me to be wary 
of self-confidence. Again, this is very anti our world and culture today. You can do anything. You can be anything. You can have anything. You can become anything. You can do anything with anyone. Whatever you want. No. We'll close with Proverbs 3. Familiar verse, but in this context, maybe it takes on some new and important weight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because my understanding and your understanding apart from the word of God is dangerous. It's anti-Christ. David is leaning on his understanding, a, a crutch that is going to break. My understanding apart from God and his word, your understanding, your logic, your reason, apart from God and his word, is unreliable. You can't think correctly without trusting in the Lord with all your heart. If you lean on your own understanding, you may end up in this sort of situation. God, help us to be wary of self-confidence. Let's bow our heads and pray together these prayers. Lord, you've given us gifts, talents, resources. Some of us, like David, don't have to work to provide for ourselves. We are especially culpable and responsible for how we use our time. Free us from thinking a life of leisure is what you would have for us. May that not be our aim. Help us to use our gifts, our talents, our resources for your glory. Lord, help all of us, especially men, to make a covenant with our eyes and to have an action plan for when these kinds of situations, that is, dark, lustful temptations, come our way, whether we are alone in front of a screen or in a very public setting. Lord, help us to be wise about who we spend time with alone. And Lord, help us to be wary of our own thoughts, if our own thinking is not beginning with the fear of the Lord and is not saturated with the Bible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.